Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. This will be our last episode reading the end of policing. This is the conclusion portion of the book. Policing needs to be reformed. We do indeed need new training regimes, enhanced accountability, and a greater public role in the direction and oversight of policing. We need to get rid of the warrior mindset and militarized tactics. It is essential that police learn more about the problems of people with psychiatric disabilities. Racist and brutal police officers who break the law, violate the public trust, and abuse the public must be held to account. The culture of the police must be changed so that it is no longer obsessed with the use of threats and violence to control the poor and socially marginal. That said, there is a larger truth that must be confronted. As long as the basic mission of police remains unchanged, none of these reforms will be achievable. There is no technocratic fix. Even if we could somehow implement these changes, they will be ignored, resisted, and overturned because the institutional imperatives of the politically motivated wars on drugs, disorder, crime, etc. would win out. Powerful political forces benefit from abusive, aggressive, and invasive policing, and they are not going to be won over or driven from power by technical arguments or heartfelt appeals to do the right thing. They may adopt the language of reform and fund a few pilot programs, but mostly they will continue to reproduce their political power by fanning fear of the poor, non-white, disabled, and dispossessed, and empowering police to be the, quote, thin blue line, end quote, between the haves and the have-nots. This does not mean that no one should articulate or fight for reforms. However, those reforms must be part of a larger vision that questions the basic role of police in society and asks whether coercive government action will bring more justice or less. Too many of the reforms under discussion today fail to do that. Many further empower the police and expand their role. Community policing, body cameras, and increased money for training reinforce a false sense of police legitimacy and expand the reach of the police into communities and private lives. More money, more technology, and more power and influence will not reduce the burden or increase the justness of policing. Ending the war on drugs, abolishing school police, ending broken windows policing, developing robust mental health care, and creating low-income housing systems will do much more to reduce abusive policing. In the 20th century, two major areas of policing were eliminated when alcohol and gambling were legalized. These two changes reduced the scope of policing without sacrificing public safety. Prohibition had led to a massive increase in organized crime, violence, and police corruption, but had little effect on the availability of alcohol. Ending it reduced crime, enhanced police professionalism, and incarcerated fewer people. Similarly, fruitless attempts to stamp out underground lotteries, sports betting, and gambling proved totally counterproductive, empowering organized crime and driving police corruption. Government control and regulation of gambling has raised revenue and undermined the power of organized crime. By creating state lotteries, regulating casinos, and only minimally enforcing sports betting, the state has limited police power without sacrificing public safety. 
There's no reason the same couldn't be done for sex work and drugs today. The billions saved in policing and prisons could be much better used putting people to work and improving public health. We don't have to put up with aggressive and invasive policing to keep us safe. There are alternatives. We can use the power of communities and government to make our cities safer without relying on police, courts, and prisons. We need to invest in individuals and communities and transform some of the basic economic and political arrangements in our society. Chemical dependency, trauma, and mental health issues play a huge role in undermining the safety and stability of neighborhoods. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, just, it's a, just a, uh, a bottle of water, one of those bigger bottles of water, that'd be perfect. Thank you, man, I appreciate it. Actually, you know what, you could give me an orange juice. I have to get an orange juice. I got a couple other waters already. An orange juice. Thank you, man, for real. Okay, where are we at? Sorry about that, y'all. Okay. Chemical dependency, trauma, and mental health issues play a huge role in undermining the safety and stability of neighborhoods. People who are suffering need help, not coercive treatments. Even children and teens with some of the most serious personal problems can be helped with sustained and intensive engagement and treatment. They need mentors, counseling, and support services for themselves and their families. These, quote, wraparound, end quote, approaches show promising results and cost a lot less than cycling young people through jails, courts, emergency rooms, probation, and parole. People adapt their behaviors to a dysfunctional environment where unemployment, violence, and entrenched poverty are the norm. Even after 20 years of declining crime rates, there are neighborhoods where violence remains a major problem. These areas are almost all extremely poor, racially segregated, and geographically and socially isolated. The response of many cities has been further intensive policing. Recent crime increases and social unrest in places like Chicago, Milwaukee, and Charlotte attest to the failure to end abusive policing or produce safety. The most segregated and racially unequal cities in the country are its most violent. Decades of deindustrialization, racial discrimination in housing and employment, and growing income inequality have created pockets of intense poverty where jobs are scarce, public, service ina- public services inadequate, and crime and violence widespread. Even with intensive over-policing, people feel unsafe and young people continue to use violence for predation and protection. Any program for reducing crime and enhancing social well-being, much less achieving racial justice, must address these conditions. No one on the political stage is talking seriously about this reality. Racial segregation in the United States is as bad today as it has ever been. Poor communities need better housing, jobs, and access to social, health, recreational, and educational services, not more money for police and jails. Yet that's what's on offer across the country. From Chicago to New York to California, local politicians continue to hold out more police and new jails as the solution to community problems. This must stop. Okay. Here, let me get something to drink and then let's we'll have a reflection. I think 
what stands out to me about the thing, the paragraphs that we've read in the conclusion so far is that each each paragraph sort of reads like the basis of an argument against policing. Like one, if you were just to need to give people bullet points on why policing has to be changed, why it has to be new a new institution, why it's not simply just enough for reformation and how it goes beyond even just laws or it goes beyond just even the enforcing of laws, but to the creating of laws and then even to how we view people in society, the the, the human issue that exists within the prop with the within Within the issues of policing, there is also a human issue, a lack of humanity, a dehumanizing element that is completely connected to policing and mass incarceration. Uh, and so each one of that's sort of what I pull from each one of these paragraphs that you could sort of have a conversation or if or they're sort of like talking points. And each one of these talking points is sort of expounded upon throughout this book. And so. And it's very straight to the point. I think one of the things that's the most important about this book is it's very easy to understand. It's very straight to the point. There's a lot of statistics and information that's given, but it, it does a good job of, even if you don't remember the specific statistics, specific stories, specific information, it does a good job of painting the picture of where all of these different forms of policing have failed us as a society. And I think the sentence that's the most striking is, the most segregated and racially unequal cities in the country are its most violent. And when you think about some of the books that we've already read here that sort of painted the specifically uh, high risers and that sort of painted to you what it's like in Chicago, one of the most segregated cities in the, in the country. And it paints to you the extent of the violence that exists there. It paints to you the extent of the despair and, and uh what some may call criminal ele element that exists there. And it, it shows you how an emphasis, and, and one of the things that there has not lacked, we read, was arrest and police and how the police would regularly raid the area and the police would regularly do have different tactics that they would use in the area and people was a steady turnover of people being arrested. But that, because they were only dealing with the effects, which was violence and drug dealing, and disruption and disorderly conduct and not dealing with the roots of the problems, which was poverty, unequitable and unequal education, substandard living conditions, substandard health conditions, both physically and mentally. They could never get these problems solved. And so I think the, uh, this country is a the history of this country is one of dealing with the effects and not dealing with root causes. And so I think, again, Alice Vitale does a good job of painting the, of putting a highlight on why we need to deal with the root causes and not just dealing with, and not deal with the effects. Okay, I'm trying to see where we left off at. My fault, give me one second. Uh... Okay, one second. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> Sorry about that, y'all. 
These communities also need more political power and resources to develop their own strategies for reducing crime. Concepts like restorative justice and justice reinvestment offer alternatives. The money that would be saved by keeping people out of prison could be spent on drug and mental health services, youth programs, and jobs in the community. At the same time, offenders could be asked to make restitution to their victims and the community through community service projects, agreements to stay clean and sober, and participation in appropriate programming. The justice reinvestment movement also looked to use savings achieved by reducing incarceration rates to invest in high-crime communities. Unfortunately, many of these programs ended up only moving money around within the criminal justice system and excluding communities from any role in the process. The basic ideal remains sound, but new efforts at realizing it are needed and communities need to play a major role in deciding how the resources are used. But not all problems can be solved at this level. Access to decent housing and employment and the ongoing problems of polarized income structures and racial discrimination in housing must be dealt with systematically. Systemically, excuse me. Raising the minimum wage, restoring transit links, and cracking down on housing discrimination are big problems that operate largely outside these poor neighborhoods. If we want to make real headway in reducing the concentrated pockets of crime in this country, we need to create real avenues out of poverty and social isolation. And I think what I want to point out from that, and I know this isn't, we just had a reflection, but I want to make sure I don't forget this point. And that is that, appreciate you, I appreciate you, brother, for real, for real. Be safe out here. I'm going to holler at you. Congratulations again. Uh, I think that what stands out here is... uh, Okay, yes, my fault. Okay, so when we read High Risers, they spoke about how the building in Cabrini Green that at the end, once Cabrini Green was getting ready to be torn down and it had been decided that it was no longer... It was that it was detrimental to the people living there. It was one high-rise, one building that was different, that was being kept up to date, that was being kept clean, that was being that was having less crime happening within it, that was having uh that was running more more cohesively. And that was the building that was being ran by the tenants, that was being self-managed by the people within the building and within Cabrini Green. And when we read the chapter where they talked about the process of them becoming self self managed uh, and self ran, the empower the emphasis was on the empowerment that it gave the people within Cabrini Green. The fact that for so long they wanted to be able to change the situation that they were living in, but they didn't have the opportunities or the avenues. And once those opportunities and avenues were presented to them, they took charge and they not only took charge, but they were efficient and done it and did it well, did it better than the people who were, who were running it before. And so I think that that's the aspect that we have to always remember to point out and why communities must be involved in dealing with some of these issues going forward. Why communities, it can't be people telling these people what's going to happen. It needs to be the people who are in these areas, the people who come from these areas, who have intimate knowledge of these areas, who know the people who are in these areas, who know the culture of these areas, uh, that they must be empowered because it works twofold. When you empower people that are in these situations, not only does it have a 
a, a dynamic where it makes them, it helps them mentally or spiritually or emotionally or psychologically, however you feel it, because it makes them feel empowered and it feels like they, they feel like they can do things. Uh, but also it has a double effect because it stops some of these things from happening. Uh, when you add employment into a neighborhood that is dealing with the uh, impacts of unemployment, uh, not only do you get these people in, and when that employment, OK, let me put it like this. When that employment is about bettering the community and bettering the neighborhood, if it's, let's say, construction on houses within the neighborhood and you're going to train people who live in this neighborhood to be uh uh, electricians or train them to learn how to help to build that how these houses in some aspect not only do you remove them from being unemployed give them employment empower them and give them a trade but you also solve the problem of not having housing in an area you also solve the problem of uh, this person who might have went to sell drugs or went uh, went to rob somebody now having a, a different avenue in which to gain resources. And so those are the twofold things that I think are important when we speak about empowering the people within these circumstances. Uh, damn, I sat the book down in some water. My fault. I don't know. I'm telling y'all my fault. That's should be apologizing to the book. Uh all right, luckily we at the very end. It, it didn't get that that wet, just a just a little bit. All right, let's let's try to get this wrapped up so I can get this book dry. Okay. The Black Youth Project in Chicago envisions a program for economic development that would substantially improve the lives of people in high crime communities as an alternate alternative to relying on police and prisons. Their, quote, agenda to build black futures, end quote, calls for reparations to address the long legacy of systematic exploitation of African-Americans from slavery through Jim Crow and into the current era. Just as importantly, it focuses at length on decent jobs that can sustain a family above the poverty line. That means raising the minimum wage through direct government action, as well as giving workers the right to self-organize for better wages. Most of the advances that working Americans have made in the last century have come through the process of union, unionization and workplace activism. But in the last 35 years, governments have moved systematically to reduce worker and union power. Private sector protections have been largely erased, leading to massive union busting drives and decimating union membership rates. The public sector retains more protections, but austerity economics have substantially eroded earnings and many Republican politicians and conservative courts are actively moving to break unions and further drive down wages. Unfortunately, many unions have resisted racial integration historically and some remain incredibly white even today. So government protection of unions in the absence of a racial justice program will not be sufficient. The Movement for Black Lives has also outlined a plan for economic and political justice that includes greater investment in schools and communities based on priorities developed by black communities. At the heart of their program is a set of economic justice proposals, including reparations, which would reduce inequality, enhance individual, family, and community well-being, and protect the environment. They call for major job programs, restrictions on free trade and Wall Street exploitation, and vigorous protections of workers' rights. 
They specifically demand that funding for criminal justice institutions should be shifted to education, health, and social services. To make this possible, they demand political reforms and are developing plans for grassroots mobilizations. This is what police reform has to look like if it's going to bring meaningful changes. Rural areas need help as well. The growth in opioid use is closely linked to the downward mobility of the rural poor and the expansion of the destructive war on drugs. While simplistic protectionism and jingoistic anti-immigrant mania are unlikely to bring long-term stability, our rural areas must become more economically sustainable and livable with green jobs, infrastructure development, and non-toxic food production. Reducing subsidies to multinational corporations that move jobs overseas to countries with little in the way of labor rights or environmental protections would also be a good place to start, replacing, quote, free trade, end quote, with, quote, fair trade, end quote. None of these initiatives by themselves will eliminate all crime and disorder. They need to be combined and new ideas would need to be developed and tested but those who would benefit from this process lack the political will and power to do so. U.S. culture is organized around exploitation, greed, white privilege, and resentment. These are derived in large part from our economic system, but even profound economic changes do not automatically produce positive cultural changes, at least not oversight, at least not overnight, excuse me. Cultural norms also impede efforts to change these systems. What's needed is a process in which the very struggle for change produces cultural shifts. By working together for social, economic, and racial justice, we must also create new value systems that call into question the greed and indifference that allow the current system to flourish. We must take care of each other in a climate of mutual respect if we hope to build a better world. One of the more positive aspects of the Black Lives Matter movement has been its embrace of differences of identity and the diversity of people engaged in leading it. We can't fight racism while embracing homophobia any more than we can fight mass incarceration by embracing a politics of punishment. Both of our major political parties have accepted the politics of austerity that globalized capital has imposed on us. The neoliberal movement has been incredibly successful in normalizing the view that the only way to move forward is to unleash the creative power of a small number of economic elites by stripping away all regulations, worker protections, and financial obligations so that they can maximize their wealth at the expense of the rest of us. For 30 years, we've been told that the result will be a rising tide for everyone, a trickling down of the spoils, but we're still waiting. Wages and living standards for all but the wealthiest continue to decline. The middle class is being eviscerated, poverty and mass homelessness are increasing, and our infrastructure is collapsing. When we organize our society around fake meritocracy, we erase the history of exploitation and the ways the game is rigged to prevent economic and social mobility. When people complain about these realities, they are told it's their own fault, that they didn't try hard enough to be part of the glorious, quote, 1%, end quote, that they don't have what it takes and thus deserve to be degraded. This justifies defining all problems in terms of individual inadequacy, calling those left behind the architects of their own misery. Rather than using government resources to reduce inequality, this economic system both subsidizes inequality and criminalizes those it leaves behind.
especially when they demand something better. The massive increases in policing and incarceration over the last 40 years rest on an ideological argument that crime and disorder are the results of personal moral failing and can only be reduced by harsh, punitive sanctions. This neoconservative approach protects and reinforces the political, social, and economic disenfranchisement of millions who are tightly controlled by aggressive and evasive policing or or warehoused in jails and prisons. We must break these intertwined systems of oppression. Every time we look to the police and prisons to solve our problems, we reinforce these processes. We cannot demand that the police get rid of those, quote, annoying, end quote, homeless people in the park or the, quote, threatening, end quote, young people on the corner and simultaneously call for affordable housing and youth jobs because the state is only offering the former and will deny us the latter every time. Yes, Communities deserve protection from crime and even disorder, but we must always demand those without reliance on the coercion, violence, and humiliation that undergird our criminal justice system. The state should not encourage or... Excuse me. The state may try to solve those problems through police power, but we should not encourage or reward such short-sighted, counterproductive, and unjust approaches. We should demand safety and security but not at the hands of the police. In the end, they rarely provide either. And that is the last page of The End of Policing by Alex Vitale. Uh, This is whenever anybody asks me a book to read or a book that they should start reading or a place where they can learn information or learn more about police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice, this is the first book that I point them to. This is the book that really made me conscious to the issues that that we are dealing with in our society and in this country. Uh, this is the book that made me question things I had accepted for so long about policing and about mass incarceration. This is the book that made me be able to... This is one of the first books where this, that gave me multiple stories of people dealing with the microaggressions of police terrorism, which is uh, death being murdered. This is uh, the first book that made me question school resource officers, the first book that made me question uh, criminalizing the criminalization of sex workers, the first book that took me on the deep and uh, disheartening journey of the war on drugs. It was the first time I read about why uh, why homelessness is something that shouldn't be criminalized, you know, and so I encourage anybody who is, this is the perfect beginner's book, the perfect, the perfect, perfect book to uh, start reading, uh, to try to enlighten you uh, on to, as to why people are against the police, why people are calling for the abolishment of, of the system that exists. And uh, so uh, thank you for taking the time to listen to us go through and reading this entire book. We will be back tomorrow with another episode where we will have a discussion about the book in its entirety. And then after that, we will begin reading a new book. So I want to ask people to please share this on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Remember, we put these episodes out on a daily basis to present people the opportunity to begin and further their journey in the struggle against police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice. We outside. Talk to you tomorrow.